All right, welcome. Thank you so much for being here this afternoon. Have you guys ever been surprised by the unexpected power of something? In 2009, a Wisconsin man named Ronald Ball sued Pepsi-Cola Beverage Company with the claim that he had found the carcass of a dead mouse inside the bottle of Mountain Dew that he had gotten from a vending machine. Now, Pepsi's lawyers used a defense strategy that was equal parts brilliant and disgusting. (laughs) They claimed that it takes 15 months for their product to go from the factory to the market, and thus the man's accusations could not be true because the ingredients of Mountain Dew are so acidic (laughs) that they would dissolve a mouse into a rubbery blob in under six months. True story. The case made national headlines. It inspired some epic school science projects and ended up being settled out of court in 2012. All because Mountain Dew was found to be even more powerfully unhealthy than anybody dared to realize. So I want you guys, can you think of anything that's more powerful than you typically realize? In... Today's scripture passage, Jesus is challenging us to grasp the power of something that we normally overlook, that we normally would not think of as dynamically powerful. In Hosea 11, for example, the Bible says that God speaks like a roaring lion, and we can understand what that's telling us. In Jeremiah 23, it tells us that God speaks, and his words are like a fire or a hammer. And we're used to pastors talking about analogies like that. In the book of Hebrews, it famously says that God's word is like a sharp sword that pierces through anything it comes in contact with. But the story we're studying this afternoon, Jesus explains that what is ultimately going to make you or break you in this world is your response to a tiny seed. It's kind of surprising. A lion, a hammer, a sword in a seed. At first it kind of seems like this metaphor is kind of unimpressive. If you haven't already, please open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13 as we explore what it is that Jesus is talking about. What is Jesus teaching us about the life-changing power of this tiny seed of the gospel in our lives. Uh, Our outline this morning, uh, this afternoon, will be as follows. Uh, There's three points that are in your bulletin. Section one, let's talk about the the unexpected power of this metaphor and what Jesus is saying and what it would have meant to the original audience. Section two, let's talk about what Jesus is telling us are the three biggest threats to our spiritual growth. If we want to grow like a seed to maturity, What are the three biggest threats that keep that from happening, according to Jesus? And then finally, let's end with some application and encouragement from this parable of the soils. All right, that brings us to section one. Let's talk about the power and the fertility of this metaphor of the seed and what it probably would have meant a little bit differently to the original audience than what it means to us. Out of all those things we talked about in the introduction, a lion, a hammer, a sword, Mountain Dew, a seed, 
The seed kind of seems like the least impressive. But if you think about back to Bible times, these are people that worked the earth. These are farmers. These are people that grew everything that they ate. They did not have a Costco. Uh, they, they understood uh, the, uh, the depth of these metaphors about growing things. Furthermore, anyone who's ever had to uh, manually clear a field and remove all those rocks and pull out all those stumps would have been familiar with the truth that uh, most of the time when you see a tree, the roots below the ground go as far and as wide as the branches go out above the ground. Have you guys ever realized that before? If you've been doing landscaping or uh, a little bit of agricultural work. The most common tree in the Bible's region in uh, New Testament times was an olive tree. Did you guys know that an olive tree, on average, lives between 300 and 600 years? Pretty impressive. So all this to say to the original audience, seeds are longer lasting and more enduring than we probably realize today. We see this metaphor of seed used all throughout Scripture. It's used a couple places listed in your sermon notes. It's used in the Old Testament as currency. They use seeds as money. It's used throughout the Bible as a metaphor for the, uh, the unrighteousness or the righteousness of your children and your descendants. Okay? Your seed can be good or bad. It's used as a picture for judgment. And uh, I could give five or six other examples of how seed is used in the Bible. It's never used as just a tiny, inconsequential thing. It's always used as a bigger idea. Uh, one reference that I read this week said this, A seed is both a product and a producer. A seed is both a small investment, but it also has large potential and value. The seed yields fertile imagery in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the essence of the seed is the potential for life and generation. Let me ask you guys a question. What do all these books and movies have in common? The Martian with Matt Damon. Pixar's Wally, e Dr. Seuss's The Lorax. And the Kevin Costner masterpiece, Waterworld. <laughs> what do all those stories have in common? In each of those stories, a seed is the saving agent. Humanity will be saved if seeds can be grown and, uh, and food replenished. So as we're trying to zoom in on the theme and the tone of the parable that Jesus is telling today, Jesus also is telling a story where the seed is the saving agent. Agent. The success of the story, the success of the audience, it all hinges on if that seed will grow. Uh, one final thing I want to point out. Have you guys ever heard the phrase, the cedars of Lebanon? This is a little bit off topic. The Bible mentions the cedars of Lebanon over 103 times. I want you guys to think of, if you've ever been to the Redwood Forest... Or if you've ever just been walking through Yellowstone and you've just been so inspired by the scope of the beauty of nature. You know, in Israel, they had this forest in the northern boundaries called the Cedars of Lebanon, as I said. It's mentioned over a hundred times in the Bible. And it's their version of the most beautiful thing that they could think of. It's their version of the most inspirational place that they could go. David and Solomon's temples were built with uh, the wood from the Cedars of Lebanon. And uh, there's just all sorts of references. Imagine that you live in an arid climate. It's the desert. There's hardly any trees. And then there's this place that you've heard of. There's this place that you can go with thousand-year-old cedar trees. Uh, you can still go there to this day. It's a real place. It's always existed. And uh, the original audience would have thought of that. 
as having all come from seeds. Okay, so uh, the power of this uh, metaphor is probably more than we would uh, think of as we enter into this story. But Jesus is not uh, necessarily a tree hugger here. He's not just trying to tell us to love trees and seeds. He's trying to uh, get us to understand the spiritual soil or the climate that we need to live our lives under. So as we get to section two, let's talk about three warnings that Jesus gives each one of us. The three biggest threats to spiritual growth, according to Jesus. So he's, he's, he's giving us this metaphor of this seed. And uh, he actually explains, just so we don't kind of lose track, of what specifically he's talking about. And in Matthew uh, uh, thirteen eighteen, Jesus says that in this analogy, in this metaphor, the seeds are the words of the kingdom. The words of the kingdom. How do you get into the kingdom of God? How do you get started? Uh, As evangelicals, as Protestants, we would call that the gospel. There's so many verses throughout the whole Bible that summarize what the gospel is. One one beautiful summary is in 2 Corinthians 5.21, and it says this, God made him who had no sin to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus is telling us what's going to make or break us in this life is how we respond to the gospel, how we respond to this idea that we are sinners and Jesus came down and lived a perfect life and died and took judgment in our place so that we could be renewed, so that we could be regenerated, so that we could enter into a new relationship with God. That's the gospel. And our relationship to that summary in the different areas of our life is the essence of what Jesus is talking about in this parable. He's saying that there's three different responses to that summary, to that idea, to the the kingdom of God that would be very detrimental. And let's talk through how each one of these might impact us. The first thing that uh, Jesus tells us here is that the devil uses doubt to snatch God's truth from your heart. Jesus tells us in Matthew 13, 19, that the devil uses doubt to snatch God's truth from our hearts. Listen to how it says it right in the text, Matthew 13, 19. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Jesus is telling us that the devil is real, And it works to steal the truth that we know about God from our hearts. All right? One of the ways that culture perpetuates and plays a part in this is with deconversion stories. Have you guys ever gone online and read some deconversion story? Usually goes like this front page of the New York Times or some venue that doesn't often care about Christianity, but they found room to talk about it that day. And some recording artist, some Christian recording artist who had a one-hit wonder back in 1998, well, they just made headlines because they're renouncing their faith. And now it's on the front page of the newspaper. Do you understand what the devil is doing in that moment? The bird is coming to snatch the truth from our hearts, and we think to ourselves, wow, if that prominent person who has everything that I want, is denouncing their faith and they're denouncing the gospel? Oh, I wonder if that's a little bit down the path for me. How about this? Have you guys ever been talking to friends or family or peers 
about something that you believe because of what Scripture teaches, and they use this phrase, well, you better think about that, because I think you might find yourself on the wrong side of history. You ever heard that before? Do you know what they're saying? They're saying momentum is on our side. This is what all the rational, educated people think. And you're all the way over here. You better be careful that you're not on the right side of history. And Jesus is warning about this. He's saying the devil comes like a bird to snatch up that seed before it has time to take root. These things that we know to be true that God has told us are ripped from us before the roots come down and before it grows into fruitfulness in our lives. So it it happens in public, it happens in group settings, but of course this happens individually and personally as well. If Romans 8.28 tells us that God has a good plan for our life, what happens when something really terrible happens in our life? We sit there in our misery and we think to ourselves, well, maybe God doesn't have a good plan for my life if he would have allowed this terrible thing that I never would have chosen for myself. You know, in Ephesians 2.10, so sometimes the devil even uses circumstances to get us to doubt that seed of truth that God has put in our life. And sometimes that bird uses our emotions as well. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that you are a beautiful work that God has created to do good things that he has prepared in advance for you to do. That's Ephesians 2.10. But how many times in our adolescence have we sat in front of the mirror and looked at ourselves and thought, man, why don't other people love me like I long to be loved? And our emotions tell us that verses like Ephesians 2.10 couldn't possibly be true because we don't feel it in that moment. And these are just a couple ways that Jesus was warning us that the devil comes and tries to steal that seed of the true things that God has told us before it can be rooted and before it can grow into fullness in our lives. Another thing Jesus warns us about in verses uh, 11 and 12 is that a lack of spiritual maturity can prevent us from developing the rootedness that we need to outlast trouble and persecution. Listen to how uh, Jesus says it here. In Matthew 13, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, because of uh, the world, they quickly fall away. In other words, uh, Jesus is saying there's another thing that happens that threatens our spiritual growth and maturity. We hear the truth of what God has told us and it starts to grow in our lives. But then hardship and trouble comes and unfortunately our roots are not deep enough to hold us up when those winds and those storms blow. I I say this with the utmost sensitivity, but we probably all know people who have been walking with the Lord until they were just blindsided by a divorce or a sick child or a lawsuit, or a bankruptcy, or some terrible, unfortunate thing like that. And I have no judgment or condemnation for people who have been hit hard by life. But where I'm going with this is that there's also people among us who have been hit by those things only to stay firm and worship the Lord. So what's the difference? What allows some people to stand fast with the Lord when hard things hit while others get knocked down. It's the strength, it's the rootedness of how the gospel has grown through their life. Here's an example of one of those giants 
of faith who's walked among us. There was a man in the mid-1800s. His name was Horatio Spafford. He lost his young son uh, to death, as was common in those days. He then lost his entire fortune to the Chicago Fire. He was a very affluent businessman who owned a lot of property on Lake Michigan, which was all devastated in the Chicago Fire. He told his wife and his four daughters that they were going to need to reset their life. They were going to need to restart. He was a religious man. He was actually friends with D.L. Moody, who was having these revival meetings all over the world. D.L. Moody was going to Europe for a revival meeting, so uh, Horatio Stafford loaded up his wife and his four daughters into a steamer to go across the ocean to do God's work right alongside D.L. Moody. Tragedy struck. The ship went down in the open ocean. His wife was saved and his four young daughters died. Horatio Spafford got on a ship to meet his wife in Europe. And as the ship was crossing the ocean, crossing the very same area where his four daughters were tragically lost, he wrote the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. The lyrics go like this. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. So the question is, what allows somebody to write such faith-filled lyrics after such great loss and tragedy? What allowed Horatio Spafford to stay rooted in the midst of all those losses when so many others are not able to? I think the answer comes in the next line that says this, Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. So this guy was able to stay rooted in his faith despite these terrible losses because of his understanding of the gospel, because of his understanding of what Jesus had done for him. It was through discipline and an act of the will. We're not saved through discipline. We're not saved through an act of the will. But we're able to hold to Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit in times of loss with discipline and a great act of the will. This guy somehow, and I don't know how he did it, but he chose worship over bitterness in a time of great loss. I promise you guys, if you chose If you choose worship over bitterness in your seasons of loss, your faith will stay rooted as well. Jesus gives us a final warning here. Listen carefully to this one. It's maybe not what I would have chosen as the third most serious threat to our faith. Jesus, of course, knows better than us. He says, Anxiety and the deceitfulness of wealth will choke out our spiritual fruitfulness. Listen to Matthew 13, 22 that says this. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. So we have to be really careful here because it would be really easy to just hear that Jesus is saying that wealth is the danger. 
it would be really easy to be like, well, I'm glad that I'm not rich because every single person just thinks of someone that makes a little bit more as rich. Like nobody, nobody reads the Bible and they're like, I'm, I'm rich. You know, it's easy to just put that on somebody else. But Jesus isn't saying that wealth is what's so detrimental to our spiritual fruitfulness. He's saying it's the deceitfulness of wealth. And I'm not sure that there's a great definition within the text, so let's just all work together here. What do you guys think that Jesus is referring to when he says that the third greatest threat to our spiritual fruitfulness is the deceitfulness of wealth? I'm just kind of guessing here, but to me, the deceitfulness of wealth is that if you have enough, you won't need anybody. Why do you go to work on a hard day? Why do you come home and check your bank account when the news says that the stock market is, you know, up and down? We feel like if we have enough, we won't need anybody else. And if we don't need anybody else, we won't get sucked into their mess. And we won't be desperate. And we'll be able to survive on our own. And I think that makes sense when Jesus says, the deceitfulness of wealth keeps us from being spiritually fruitful. Because uh, if you also read Matthew 13, 22 very carefully... The other two seeds, the other two plants have died. But this one isn't dead. It's alive. It's just not fruitful. And I think this describes a lot of churchgoers. I don't know you guys yet, but maybe other people that I know. There's a lot of people that go to church and they love the Lord and that gospel has taken root in their lives. But an outsider wouldn't describe them as fruitful. And it's because their anxieties and their worries... And this deceitfulness of wealth, this idea that if you handle your business, you won't need to depend on anybody else, keeps them from having the, uh, the vitality and the spiritually dynamic life that Jesus is calling us to have. Don't raise your hands. Don't elbow the person next to you. But just kind of uh, think through if you've ever had these thoughts. I don't really need to go to church today. It's not going to make or break me. I can, I can go a Sunday from Bedside Baptist, right? Uh, I don't really need to go and sing today. I can just read my Bible. I really don't need to worship. I can go a week or two without it. I don't need to be in a Bible study. Like, I can turn on a preacher on the radio. I can go to church on Sunday. I don't need to be reading through my Bible. Well, you know, the pastor said I should really have friends in my life that challenge me on if I'm applying and living out scripture in my life, but I just don't have anybody in my life that fits that description right now. Do you guys understand that in all of these lies that we tell ourselves, what we're really believing is the deceitfulness of wealth that we don't need anybody else. We can do it on our own. And Jesus is saying that's the third biggest thing that we need to warn against. We need a dependence on God for spiritual fruitfulness. We need a dependence on our local church for spiritual fruitfulness. And we need a dependence on our Christian brothers and sisters for spiritual fruitfulness. Let's wrap up here in section three. Let's try to apply this metaphor. If Jesus could have said that God's word was like any of those other things, but he challenged us to think about the gospel like a seed, let's wrap up with three encouraging thoughts about how that could help us have the faith that we want. First one is this. I think Jesus is telling us this story, wanting us to take away the fact that we need to accept and we need to nurture and we need to cultivate the gospel. Raise your hand if you guys have any plants in your home. 
All right. Live ones. All right. Raise your hand if you ever killed a plant in your house. Not intentionally, right? Like, you have to cultivate a plant. Each one is a little bit different. Some you have to water every day. Some will die if you water them every day. And you just, it's the same thing with your garden. It's the same thing with your landscaping. You kind of have to figure out the needs of each plant. When Jesus is telling this story of the soils, he's telling us that our response to the gospel is something that we have to cultivate. It's something that we have to nurture. It's not something that we hear once when we go to Young Life Camp when we're 13, change our religious affiliation to Christian, and then never think about again. That's the opposite of what Jesus is trying to teach us in this parable. I mentioned that the most common fruit-producing plant in Bible times was the olive tree. Did you guys know that it takes 15 years before an olive tree produces fruit? That's a long time if you plant one in your yard and want to eat olives. Once I I was at a picnic and there was pasta salad and I I thought it was fruit salad and I thought I was biting into a grape and I bit into an olive, it was the grossest thing that ever happened to me. All right. The essence of what Jesus is telling us here is that the parable of the soils, this life in Christ that we all want, it requires us letting the gospel grow through the various areas of our life. So if there's this idea that you're a sinner and Jesus Christ died for you and gave you new spiritual life so that you could be adopted into God's family. What a beautiful picture. If that's the gospel, and if that's what Jesus is telling us we need to let grow into our lives, what does that mean over the next 15 years for your self-identity? How might that change the way that you think about yourself and understand who you are? How might the gospel change your purpose? And what you do as a profession and what you study in school and what you spend your time and resources on. What might the gospel look like 15 years into your marriage that doesn't always show up in the first year or two? What does the gospel look like in your parenting? What does the gospel mean for your sexuality? Don't throw me off the stage. What does the gospel mean for your politics? Jesus is saying that what makes or breaks us in this life is how the gospel flows through all those different areas over time. The preacher Tim Keller says this, what Jesus is really saying, he's saying, hear, understand, listen. The way that this incredible power is released in your life and the way in which you get initiated into this whole new order of life is by taking this information, the word of God, the gospel, and listening and reflecting in discussing and applying it over and over again and working it through your life. So the first thing that I hope we're all thinking about as we leave today is how are you going to accept and nurture and cultivate and let the gospel grow through your life like Jesus is calling us to have with the good soils. The second thing that should jump out, to is, jump out to us is this. We need to anticipate and prioritize spiritual multiplication. You might never have heard that phrase before, spiritual multiplication. Listen to what Jesus says here. It's kind of like the exclamation point of the story here in Matthew 13, 8. It says this. You know, there's all these soils, and the first three all kind of had this negative outcome. But what happens to the fourth soil, the seed in the good soil? As still others fell on good soil where it produced a crop. 
a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. In other words, there's a lot of bad outcomes that can come as people respond to the gospel unideally. But when you do it right, when it's a priority, when you accept and nurture and cultivate it, when you work it through all those areas of your life, when you let the gospel regenerate the way that you look and act in this world, it comes back 30 or 60 times more powerful than just that one seed. And that makes a lot of sense if you grew up in an agricultural world, right? Because you throw one seed into the ground and it comes out wheat and it comes out corn. And then each one of those kernels of corn has the power to turn into, you know, more corn and apple seeds or whatever. Example, you come up with one seed can turn into exponentially more seeds. And Jesus is brilliantly telling us that that's true in our spiritual lives and our response to the gospel as well. Um, Let's talk for a second about what that might look like in our church. There's a lot of things that the Bible calls us to do. One of them is to care for the poor, and so we support the local food bank here. We're always looking for ways to help people that are needy. That's a super important mission of the church. But another very, very important mission of the church is to bring forth new spiritual life, like that seed that comes back 30 or 60-fold. In other words... We should be a church that values and invests in youth ministry. And when you come this winter and there's some teenager in front of you just looking at their phone, half disinterested, you shouldn't say shame on their parents. You should think to yourself, I'm so glad this is a church where a teenager is half listening to the pastor, right? (laughs) I'm going to pray that they 80% listen to the pastor or whatever the case is. You know, we want to um, support things that improve our community, but we also want to support international missions because if Jesus is telling us that the goal and the end result of our response to the gospel should be to reproduce 30, 60, and 90-fold, doesn't that make sense that we would empower missionaries who take the seeds of the gospel to a region that's never had the freedom to preach the gospel? I was so moved two weeks ago when Tom shared with us the initiatives Uh, that he and this church are supporting in Mongolia to bring the gospel to people that have never heard it before. And that should stir our hearts as we want to support and take part in this seed that grows 30 and 60 times. And how about this? How about a soft heart for discipleship? If the word discipleship means to help somebody else become a disciple, help somebody else become more like Jesus Christ. If there's a new couple that shows up at church, and they seem a little bit unchurchy, shouldn't we be drawn to them? Shouldn't we want to help them integrate into church life? Shouldn't we want to help them grow in the Lord? What if you are in a small group and it's feeling a little bit full and and you're kind of enjoying the people that are in that Bible study with you and somebody else asks if they can join your Bible study? Say, no, we're kind of full. (laughs) Or should you value new growth? Should you say, please come, I'll make my husband sit on the floor? (laughs) What about if our church uh, has a couple people that are excited about some new ministry, and this new ministry is going to proclaim the gospel to people in our community or in our world that that don't normally interact with the gospel? Should we kind of be like, I don't know, our church is already doing a lot of stuff. Or should we value new spiritual life that reproduces itself in the way that the punchline of this story tells us that we should be striving for? Let's wrap up with this as the worship team comes up in just a second. 
Uh, There's something else. There's another time that Jesus uses this same metaphor that I want to encourage you guys with. Uh, I don't like to jump around to a bunch of different places because Jesus has certainly given us a lot to think about right here in Matthew 13. But listen to what Jesus says in John 12, verses 23 to 25. He's talking about what's going to happen in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's talking about that that he knows that he's going to die on the cross. Jesus didn't want to die on the cross, but he did it out of obedience. He did it knowing that God's will was ultimately more important and dynamic than what he was feeling at that time. Listen to what Jesus is telling us about the power of seeds, even in their death. In John 12, 23 to 25, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls on the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. And anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, Jesus is saying, sometimes our love of the gospel requires us to take what other people would consider a loss. But if you've taken something that people might consider a loss for the gospel, just know that just like a seed falls into the ground that turns into many more seeds, sometimes that death brought on by the gospel actually results in great life. If others have watched you mocked for your belief in the gospel, I imagine that there were at least some witnesses there that watched you getting mocked for your Christian beliefs and came away from that conflict kind of deducting that there must be something substantial in what you believe to lead you to get mocked in front of other people, right? That's new life coming from that loss. Maybe you have suffered a great loss of a loved one and you decided to keep your heart full of worship to God. Maybe you went through something terrible, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a child, and like Horatio Spafford, you were able to keep your heart full of worship to God. I guarantee you that you had peers in that ordeal that came out of that realizing that God's goodness was bigger in your life than the hurt and the sorrow of that terrible occurrence, right? That's new life coming from loss. I've officiated funerals for godly parents and godly grandparents that have been praying for decades that their prodigal children who didn't love the Lord would one day realize the power of the gospel only for that adult child to come to me on that day of the funeral and say, now I understood why dad loved Jesus so much. Now I understand what grandma was always talking about. When a seed dies, it produces many more seeds. Be encouraged. In your gospel loss, I imagine that a lot of great life is coming out of that. Let's conclude with this. In Matthew 13, Jesus is teaching us that our response to the gospel is ultimately what's going to make or break our spiritual growth and maturity. Study this parable. Go home and read it this week. Think about the condition of the soil in your life. Think about out of those four categories that Jesus gave, which one seems the most like your attitude and habits right now. And then grow and flourish to be this mature plant that Jesus is calling us to be. And as you do that with his help and with the help of your local church, we're going to see spiritual new life and it's going to be beautiful.